Hello, friends. Without just your headsets, we are back with episode 71 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. I am thrilled to be speaking with all of you again. My name is Eric Nance, and as always, I am joined by my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how's it going? It's going great, Eric. Uh, feels like Groundhog Day for some reason, but it's yeah, going Yeah, I can't put my awesome. finger on it. Right? Yeah, it just seems like we were just talking to each other. I don't know. You all figure that one out. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but yes, um, I'm thrilled to be back with episode a new episode. Um, and since you've been on this show, it's been a few months. And our weekly itself has had a little bit of challenge recently. But we are happy to say that it is back up and running, albeit in a uh, somewhat modified state. But I will tell everyone here listening kind of the good news and the things that are still in progress so good news is is that we have a regular schedule again we are aiming to have a new issue every week like before um it's just that the process of aggregating our content is a little bit scaled down because much of our back-end infrastructure is still not quite working the way it was before but we have moved to at least temporarily, or a way it's always been around, but a way that all of you out there, if you want to contribute resources to the things you've seen, um, the GitHub repository for Art Weekly will gladly take pull requests of links to the issue draft every week. And we also have a Twitter bot that you can send, you can tweet your links to. That Twitter bot has the handle at rweekly underscore submit underscore bot. And feel free to send your feedback or your links there. Um, but for now, until we get a few things figured out from the infrastructure side of things, it's probably going to uh, stay that way for a bit longer. But like I said, the team is committed to getting new issues back up and running. And um, one other awesome thing to talk about before we kick things off more formally is um, since the time away that we've had, Mike, um, you, you did a little thing. You became a father. So uh, how's how's life as a father treating you these days? I've been a dad for three and a half weeks, and it has been an awesome three and a half weeks. I appreciate some of the hard-earned advice that you had given me, Eric. Uh, it has been very useful, but everything's going great. We're very fortunate. Yes, yes. Everybody's healthy. And yeah, I told you before, savor the time because this uh, does go by quick. And um, yep, uh, lots of good times are in store for you. And, um, well, yeah, speaking of good times, um, let's, let's dive right into it. Um, I first want to acknowledge, um, immense thanks to Rio Nakagawara and Batul Almozrak from our, our curator team. They were instrumental in assembling the links that were kind of sitting in the queue, so to speak, in the time that we've been off with our weekly. So there's a lot to digest in this particular issue. We're going to be covering the highlights, of course, but there's a whole lot more to dive into. But my thanks to Rio and Batul for kind of rounding out the uh, the next steps and getting us back on schedule. So certainly my thanks to them. And of course, for all the contributors of our weekly around the world, we thank you for your submissions. So let's, let's, let's dive into it. So our first highlight today is covering a very... Um, you might say a very influential topic in the art community, um, and that is piping operations. So piping in R actually has quite a storied history now. 
I've covered that quite a bit in episode 60 of this Our Weekly Highlights um, series of podcasts. And there I give a nice recap of how it all began way back in 2012. Um, that's I coincidentally the year I became a dad. So I feel old now. <laughs> um, but <laughs> as of as a more recent history, when R4.1 came out, um, the one of the biggest features that landed that got a lot of press, so to speak, is the new built-in native piping operator. And before piping had always been exclusive to other packages that were not part of base R like the McGreeter package that we often see in the Tidyverse, the Piper package, among others. So I've been watching this space for a little bit since the native pipe came into play. And I I always kind of been watching a little bit. I do have a lot of legacy projects that still use McGreeter, but I wondered, well, if I'm starting a new project with a new version of R that's more up to date, should I take the plunge? I admit I've been a little hesitant because I did hear some rumblings of some differences, but I never really put a lot of thought into it. But I'm happy to say that Isabel Velasquez, uh, Senior product, product Manager at our studio, she has taken a huge initiative here with her recent blog post to look at the different mental models that really need to be taken into account as you're thinking about the way you use the pipe from a greeter and to transition to the new native pipe operator. Some of the bigger paradigm shifts I've seen as I read through this and some of the other resources I saw previously is that the right-hand side of the piping process um, kind of has different expectations, you might say, in certain situations compared to the McGreeter pipe when you look at the native pipe. With McGreeter, if you had a situation where your right-hand side function didn't necessarily take as the first argument the result of your left-hand side part of the call, you could still funnel that through into the right-hand side by using a period notation for the place of that parameter. In the native built R pipe, it's not quite that simple. You need to set up an anonymous, you might say, lambda function to help kind of wrap where that argument is going to go and then you can you know go around your way now maybe it's because i saw both the native pipe and the new syntax for anonymous functions kind of rolled into some of the examples that i felt a little bit cautious about it but i have to say i haven't really given it a fair shake yet i've all just been kind of watching this from afar but i know mike you've said you've been uh, interested in this um, operation for a bit Maybe you can take me to a little uh, piping school here and give me your thoughts on how the native pipe is from your experience. Yeah, I've really adopted the native pipe since it's come along. And I, I don't want to get into a, my pipe is better than your pipe <laughs> pipe off here. But um, the first thing that I will say is, is how cool is it that Isabella's blog is called Pipe Dreams. I think she wins the prize for my favorite blog name. I would encourage everybody else to check out the rest of her blog. I'm loving the native pipe for a couple of reasons. I think potentially it provides you with less dependencies. If for some reason your analysis, you know, you're not using dplyr or magriter. I think it's also, you know, just from a personal preference standpoint, aesthetically cleaner. It's, it's one less character. It's not surrounded in like percent signs, which I think, you know, if you're writing sort of mathematical code, 
can be maybe a little confusing to, to uh, a newbie. And um, it ends in a right arrow instead of a percent, which to me is a little bit more intuitive, like pointing towards, hey, we're going to pipe this thing into this next thing on the right-hand side. Um, you know, I'm still not sold necessarily on the Lambda functions with the base pipe. I don't think that they are super legible, super intuitive, I'm sitting, talking from a reviewer's perspective. And most of my work, I've been able to just really one for one swap the old Magrater pipe and the base pipe if I'm refactoring my code. Because uh, most of the time, I'm only using a pipe into a tidy function. And what I mean by that is where the first argument calls for a data frame. Typically, I'm taking the data frame on the left-hand side, piping it into a tidy function where the first argument calls for a data frame. I know you have the ability, and I've seen folks um, you know, pipe into a function where the first argument is not a data frame, so it's not a tidy function. And you know, if you think of something like LM or GLM, where data is actually you know, the second or third argument in that function, um, you can use a period as sort of a placeholder to say, you know, actually, I want that thing from the left-hand side of the pipe to be in this argument, not the first argument. I try to not do a lot of that. I think that it's a little confusing just, just for myself. Um, you know, that period kind of sitting, floating there by itself to me is, is I don't know, a little uncomfortable to look at. So I, I try not to do that. And because I don't have much of that going on in my code, um, that one-for-one -one swap between the Magritte pipe and the, the new base R pipe um, is pretty easy. I don't run into any issues there. I will point out as a tip to folks out there who are looking to adopt the new pipe and are maybe frustrated that they don't have a keyboard shortcut anymore because they're, they're used to having that nice keyboard shortcut for the Magritte pipe. You can actually just go into the global settings in our studio and change the pipe keyboard shortcut, which on Windows is Control-Shift-M, to output the native pipe instead of the Magritte pipe. Um, so that's a huge tip for me. Saves me a lot of typing. Um, in this article, I also learned some, some crazy things. Isabel does a great job of really getting under the hood of both of these pipes and, and, and really talking about a lot of different ways that they compare and contrast. Um, I learned that there is a, a another operator percent dollar sign percent um, that can be used with more of those base R functions whose arguments look for a vector like you would get from DF dollar sign column. You know, I'm oh, thinking sure. about the thinking about the base plot function, right, where X calls for you know uh, empty cars dollar sign whatever column you want, and then on your Y axis, you know, you have to say it over again empty cars dollar sign you know whatever the second column. Is. So if you actually use this this other operator I'm talking about, you don't have to specify the, the data frame. It gives you sort of that uh, you know Magritte uh, experience as opposed to you know a, a non-standard evaluation tidy column name with the, the typical Magritte pipe. So learned a lot. Really appreciated this blog post. I think it's really timely. I haven't seen anybody really talking about comparing and contrasting these two pipes now that we do have the the option between the two. Yeah, and and yeah, kudos to Isabella for for making this so clear and practical and approachable to us for both those who may be new to even R in general or learning about the pipe for the first time, or even the uh, the uh, graybeards like me, so to speak, that have been using that uh, Magritte pipe for so long. It's kind of hard to sometimes make that shift, but this is a great way to make that and. 
but but that that keyboard shortcut tip you made that's so important because sometimes you want you want to keep you know a somewhat similar paradigm um, in the way you execute these and the way you develop it and little time saving things like that can really add up after a while so kudos to to having that as a configurable option in our studio and, and even other editors you can do a similar thing as well definitely i can't take credit for that tip i did see it on twitter somewhere we could maybe put in the show notes who pointed that one out. oh you bet absolutely and you know us and the r weekly highlights uh you know team we love to save time we love to not have to do a lot of manual effort for even for this podcast production sometimes you know we, we have a you know things happen um but one thing that i've been really thinking about is bringing time savings and and you know manual effort saving into my development work and our our last highlight today is going to be a great tool in that paradigm as well now anytime i see a resource or a link come through our weekly that's from the wonderful organization our open sci i always perk up a lot because we've discussed in the previous highlights um, some of the immense efforts they brought to the forefront to better the art community. We've talked about their very robust, transparent, and really leading standard of peer review of new packages that come into the R OpenSci umbrella. Um, I've really enjoyed watching that from afar, as well as the way they share some of the specific tooling they've been creating, like um, even the R Universe, you know, repository that's been open source recently, and also another tool that they developed for their internal package checks, which appropriately is a package called package check. And before, this has always been able to be um, run on a local R installation as a way to run the similar checks as what they would ask package authors to account for when they would submit a package for inclusion into R OpenSci. So, this means that you, Mike, you could run this uh, package check, you know, set of checks on your local Windows install of R or whatever operating system you're on. I could run this on my fancy over-the-top Linux uh, distribution checks are on my house here in my containers. And But there's one issue with that. That's kind of the on-your-machine syndrome, right? You maybe I'm not going to be running those same checks that you check on that OS, you know, environment. What if we had a way to take advantage of that, but in a much more automated and a high scale, you know, fashion? Well, thanks to this recent post on the R OpenSide blog from Mark Padgum and Jacob Wusiek Jens, my apologies in advance for my terrible pronunciations. Um, they have written a new post on the R OpenSide blog that shared the exciting news that this package check set of checks can now be invoked directly as a GitHub action. GitHub Actions is a somewhat newer service offered within the GitHub you know, suite, who of course were acquired by Microsoft years ago, but it's basically a way for you to run at a key event in your repository, such as a push to a main branch, maybe a pull request to your repo or some other event, you can execute system level commands in these custom containers that are spun up totally outside of your, you, you don't have to do anything for it. All you have to do is set up a YAML file that tells GitHub Actions what to do. So now the package check package comes with a convenient function 
called Use GitHub Action Package Check to set up this bootstrapping for you so that when you commit that to your repo, and from that point on, you can have the same set of checks being run in GitHub Actions instead of just on your local machine, meaning that now you can set up kind of a checking matrix of like, I want to check this package on you know Mac OS. I want to check it on Windows. I want to check it on different versions of Linux. You can now run that all in the cloud thanks to GitHub's infrastructure. So to me, this is this is already you know awesome in and of itself. But the other part that really intrigued me was that you can now opt into integrations with your repository's issue tracker, so that every time these checks are run it can write an issue for you automatically with the summary results or even the more detailed checks themselves. So you can have this documented automatically for your reference or perhaps even references by other parts of your maybe a production pipeline. So I think this is a great win as usual, our open size kind of leading the way to making some of these things happen and taking advantage of technology in this space. So Mike, I know you like to bring automation and, and time savings in your efforts. Yeah, what's your take on on this uh, new capability with our open size package check? Absolutely, love GitHub Actions uh, to start with. Um, really like the uh, all the automation that we have at our fingertips with GitHub Actions. I will also add that GitHub Actions um, for for folks who aren't just looking for event driven um, automation. Do have also the cron ability to schedule uh, a workflow, a script, a set of scripts to run every morning, every couple hours, once a week, that type of thing. So we have at Catchbrook quite a few GitHub actions in place to do things like uh, you know Selenium scraping with Python on a oh, weekly basis nice. into some sort of a cloud database. So GitHub actions have been a game changer for us to not have to build out that infrastructure ourselves and not have to do the old, hey, it works on my machine, right? We, we, we can build something that's going to work everywhere. And that's kind of the, the whole idea behind um, what the, the package check uh, check check uh, project has tried to put together here. So my favorite part of the package check uh, work that they are open side folks have worked on is the ability to get a new badge in your readme. Obviously, that's my favorite part. Um, everybody likes a nice green badge uh, that turns green if your package check checks pass. Another resource that I would point out that I think is, is fairly coupled in here um, is the RLib Actions repository. So if you go to github.com slash r hyphen lib actions, that repository, you can see all of the awesome pre-baked GitHub actions that you can call right from your own GitHub repository workflow. Um, I think it's so important to build these types of checks, you know, around documentation, around ensuring that our unit tests pass uh, into your development workflow. I continue to be so impressed by our open size efforts to build these rigorous checks and balances into your package development. Otherwise, really, you have no way of knowing that your logic was definitely implemented correctly, or at least you don't have any sort of assurances, right? Maybe we can never know exactly for sure that this function uh, implements exactly what we want it to, but we can at least write a bunch of tests around that to give ourselves a safety net. We're all human. Even the best data scientists will admit that they write a few bugs from time to time, except Eric. I can't oh. count. <laughs> that was a joke. 
for both of us in our <laughs> I can't count the number of times that I wrote a test that failed after I wrote the function and I was like I am 100% sure that I wrote this function perfectly there's no way this test is going to fail and then all of a sudden you know two out of the four tests that I wrote failed and I have to go back and refactor because something that was in my head didn't hit my keyboard correctly and I was so grateful to those tests um that's the whole game, the whole game here. And I think it, it really highlights the importance of rigorous testing, rigorous checking and the work that uh, folks like Mark and Jacob, you know, who are writing these GitHub actions, check logic for all of us to just easily use. So we don't have to hand spin this stuff ourselves. It can't be understated how important that is. Uh, I have no doubt that it's going to catch a lot of issues that one lead to better science and to save reviewers a lot of valuable time. Um, it leads me to think about CRAN package submissions before DevTools was available and you could run DevTools check where you know I've submitted a package or two to CRAN and always spend a lot of time, catch a ton of things in that DevTools check that, that I had missed, that I know if I had had to submit that to CRAN that the volunteers would have just said, you know, you should probably give up and go home. <laughs> so, um, yeah, th those are my thoughts. Uh, Eric, I think you were in the wild, wild west before DevTools existed and may have submitted or worked on some CRAN packages. Yes. Tell us about that. Yes, it was far different back then. Um, all I had to go by was the official R manual in terms of R itself and the default R command check, which... Boy, if you don't know how to interpret that, yeah, you're in you're in for some uh, learning the hard way, I guess. So I released a package of CRAN back in 2009, and I dare say it's a lot easier now to get, get a package bootstrap. And this is kind of a timely thing to think about because recently um, I was consulted at my company from some statisticians of a series of functions in a folder that they've been running to make a, a, an analysis kind of routine and they wanted other people to use it, but they kept just kind of passing the file back and forth. And I said, you know, you've hit a great situation to create a, a new package. And they are intimidated at first, like they're telling the people, but they are scared about this. And I tried to say, well, let me help you. Let me point you to some resources to make this easier. First dev tools, as you said, Mike, that is a fundamental pillar in this but also things like Hadley Wickham and Jenny Bryan's R Packages book that break down the logical steps, not trying to hit you with deep, you know, computer science theory or, or other DevOps principles. It's about creating a robust package, using the tooling, things to watch out for, eventually getting to release. Um, I think it's far easier to get into that now and not feel, feeling like you're climbing a mountain to get there but you just take these small steps and they all add up. And once you get over that first package, or sometimes I would even feel this way about shiny app development, getting that first one done, you are going to feel so much more confident again with the tooling and then the experience of going through that first one. So I often hear that, that case of people getting intimidated by it. But I think in today's day and age, use these resources like dev tools, like package check to your advantage to you know, make this a lot easier for you. 
I think it's awesome that you were able to convince some folks that it's not too scary to create a package and that they had a perfect use case for it. You know, we see that with some of our clients at Catchbook all the time. You know, folks think that this that the concept of building an R package is something that's that's really, really scary. But honestly, it, it's not just a ton of, like you said, computer science gobbledygook on top of your scripts. It's really things like documenting what each of these arguments in your function means it that's something that's going to save you downstream later Uh, it's it's writing unit tests to protect yourself and ensure that you know the logic that you had in your head came out correctly on the keyboard it's mostly things like that that actually just kind of build a lot of safety nets around what you're writing and once you have that that package built it becomes so easy and so obvious i think as as to why uh, that was a good use case yeah, yeah. I, I hopefully I convinced them well. They haven't gotten back to me yet, but I'll keep watching it for it. But I definitely did my part to push those resources out there. And um, yeah, and there's been other great resources shared in the R community about getting over that that package hump. I think it's it's a valuable thing to to go through. And you, yeah, the possibilities are endless after that. So. Speaking of possibilities, boy, like I said, this issue is jam-packed. We we definitely have a lot more we could talk about. Um, it's, again, accumulating a lot of what was happening previous to kind of our um, hiatus. So there's a lot thrown in there. Um, and to be honest, since all this happened so suddenly, I mean, I have a chance to read all of it yet. But I do want to make a quick plug for something that is, you know, something that Mike and I are both going to be involved with. We are both very fortunate to be speaking at the upcoming Shiny Absalon Conference happening at the end of April. I believe it's April 27 through 29. Um, So we're both be giving talks there. Um, But it's so exciting that after many, many years, we are finally getting a conference dedicated to one of Mike and I's most favorite things to do in the R in the R ecosystem is Shiny development. So um, you excited for that too? So, so excited, yes, to have a, a Shiny conference. I think back in the day, a few years ago, our studio tried to have like a dedicated Shiny conference, but it was just a one, a one-time deal. So it's great to see uh, a Shiny conference back out there and hopefully it continues for years to come. Yes, I was I was there and boy, yeah, the energy was infectious and hopefully we'll be able to replicate a little bit, bit of that virtually here as well. Um, it's going to be a mix of talks and I'll be uh, fortunate to moderate a panel discussion with Joe Chang and Winston Chang on, you know, with other guests on Shiny Development as well. So I'm taking audience questions. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be uh, I'll be there for sure. I'm having a good time. So. Yeah, I'll be talking a little bit about uh, Bootstrap, just kind of a, a soft general introduction into uh, building some Bootstrap components with you know native Shiny functions. So if you're interested, registration to the whole entire conference is free. Yes, go check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes, but totally worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, that's a. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm going to be having a little fun with my talk. I won't spoil it yet, but uh, we'll we'll have a good time with it. Yep. So. But yeah, and um, as I mentioned, our weekly is back to being regular. So we're going to be, you know, back at it here behind the mic, so to speak, and giving you our take on the highlights every single week. And if you want to know more, the best place to go is to at rweekly.org. You'll find links to this issue and the back catalog as well, and links to this very podcast right at the top of the page. 
And again, um, our, our method of submitting resources is a little bit scaled down, but go ahead to visit the GitHub repository if you find a link to submit a poll request to, and also that Twitter bot that I mentioned earlier. So we'll definitely keep the engine going, even if we're running on a little bit different equipment now, we're gonna scale it up as we as we go further. So um, uh, Mike, where can people find out what you're up to on the interwebs these days? You can check me out on Twitter, uh, Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And, and let's not forget to mention, you were my latest guest on the Shining Developer Series. Um, our first of two parts we released last week. And yeah, we had a lot of fun talking there, didn't we? Yes, thank you so much for having me again. Super excited to uh, have been given the distinction of a guest on the Shiny Developer Series, which is something I've listened to for, for so long and really admired all the guests that you've had. So hopefully we were able to give the audience of the Shiny Dev series, some interesting things to, to pick up on from our work uh, on the app that we talked about there. So definitely check that out on, on YouTube uh, if you get a chance. All right. Well, that'll, that'll wrap it up for us. And and thanks to everybody for listening. And yeah, we're happy to, to be back bringing our weekly highlights to you. And we will be back with another edition for episode 72 next week.